the Christian life is, is a life of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. So here's the reality. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So this morning, if you are a person who has put your faith in a crucified and risen Savior, Jesus, if you've turned away from your rebellion against God and you've turned in faith to Jesus Christ, the Bible says, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. So in Christ, we are recreated. In Christ, we are made new. And so we're not what we once were. We have a new identity in Christ. And the way Paul speaks of it here, the contrast he gives to us is this contrast between the old self and the new self. The old self and the new self. And we see this elsewhere. We see it also in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul again talks about the old self and the new self. So we are not the old self anymore. We are the new self and that is because of what Christ has done in us. It is because of the grace of God in our lives. So Paul can say it like this in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. He can say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. So Paul can speak of having been crucified with Christ, and he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And Paul can speak of being a new creation in Christ, old passing away, the new, everything becoming new. And here he can speak of, of, of the old self and the new self. So we are created brand new in Christ. But here's the problem. We don't always act like the new selves that we are. We don't always act like who we are. Sometimes, even though we've been created new in Christ, sometimes we put on the old self. Sometimes we put on the vices that characterized our life before we came to Jesus. Sometimes we put on the sinful things that we shouldn't put on. Do you ever do that? Does that ever happen? Right? Sometimes we, we, we think things we shouldn't think or we, or we speak words that we shouldn't speak or we act in ways that we shouldn't act. So we are new creations in Christ and yet sometimes we give ourselves over to sinful practices. And so even though we have a new identity in Christ, even though we are in Christ... We have to be careful that we don't practice those practices that were associated with our old selves. Now, I want you to turn with me, if you've got a Bible, to Colossians 3, because I just want you to see the similarity between what we just read and Colossians 3, because in Colossians 3, he says at verse 1, if, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So if we have been raised to new life in Christ, then we should be seeking the things that are above. Because that's where Christ is, at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, that's important. And I actually saw on Monday morning, I saw... Um, I was, my, my son was about to go into surgery, 
and, and, and I saw on, on, on the armband, I think it was the, um, the, the nurse that worked with the anesthesiologist, um, on, on her armband, Colossians 3.2. I was like, yeah, it's, it's a great verse, right? I mean, it's like your son's about to be taken into surgery to have his arm repaired, and Colossians 3.2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, if you're saying, well, what happened to your son? Sunday night last week, we were playing basketball in our gym here, and uh, he fell, and he fractured his humerus just above the elbow, and it was bad enough that he needed to have surgery. So my wife and I were with him in Orlando on Monday morning. He had surgery. He has four screws uh, in, in his arm now. So if you see my son, you, and you say, well, what happened to your son? What happened to, to, to Pastor Luke's son? Well, that's what happened to him. Well, to make matters worse, on Thursday, Halloween, the day of our fall festival, my wife contacts me, tells me our son Noah has fallen off a scooter, and he's hurt himself. She takes him to get checked out. Turns out he has fractured his radius around the, the wrist area. It's like, Kids, what are we doing here? So our, our son, Andrew, our youngest son, we've got to go get some bubble wrap and just like wrap the kid up and, and put him under some kind of protective watch. I don't know. In fact, he wanted to go out and play yesterday, and I'm like, listen, no. No fun for you, man. Now, of course, I let him go out and play, but it's like, we, this enough's enough, right? So, you know, it's definitely not time to schedule the family pictures, right? Not a good time for family pictures. So if you see my kids, that's what's going on with my kids. All right, so back on, the, back on the Colossians 2. So set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth, for you have died. See that? Look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now look at this, verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he describes what's earthly in you. Put to death what's earthly in you. Verse 8, he says, but now you must put them all away, right? So he says, put to death the earthly things in you. Verse 8, he says, put them all away, and he describes what we're to put away. Verse 9, he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So you've put off the old self, you've put on the new self. Look at verse 12, he says, put on then, Right, so he tells us what to put off. Now he tells us what to put on. Put on then, and there's these wonderful virtues where to put on. And then in verse 14, he says, and above all these, put on love. So we put off the vices that characterized our pre-salvation life, our life before we believed in Jesus, and we put on the virtues that are characteristic of who we are in Christ. So rather than being liars, we are truth-tellers. Rather than being filled with rage and hate, we are filled with love and compassion and kindness and humility. And so there's a contrast between who we were before we believed in Christ and now who we are that we have believed in Christ. So we are new creations in Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, here in Ephesians 4, what he begins with is this. He says to them, and I'm putting it in my own words here, don't live like unbelievers. Live like a follower of Jesus. Now, this is important because we've talked about Ephesians, the first half being doctrinal. 
And we've talked about election and predestination and adoption and, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit and redemption. And we've talked about the unity that Christ has created between believing Jews and believing Gentiles, that we are one body, we are one church. But now that we've come to the second half of this letter to the church at Ephesus, what we see is that the Christian faith is so practical. And what he is calling his audience to do and what he is calling us to do is to not live like the world around us. Church, we are called to live differently. We're not called to live like the world. We're not called to live like everybody else is living. We're not called to be popular in, in the way we live our lives. No, we are to be countercultural. We are to be Christ-honoring. We are not to walk, and this is the language he uses here, we are not to walk as the Gentiles do. Now, by referring to the Gentiles, what he's referring to is unbelievers, because part of his audience, in fact, I think a large part of his audience that he's writing to consists of Gentile believers. And so he's saying to them, don't live your life like the Gentile unbelievers. Don't live your life like those who are unsaved. Don't live your life like an unbeliever. Look how he describes them. They walk, verse 17, in the futility of their minds. Verse 18, he says they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God. Verse 19, he says they become callous. And they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. So here he is talking about those who their, their, their mind is, is darkened to the truths of God. Right? I mean, th these could be incredibly smart people. These could be geniuses. But when it comes to spiritual matters, their minds are darkened. And they're alienated or separated from the life of God. They've, they're, 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 they're callous. And, and, and they have agreed to practice all kinds of impurity. What he is describing is he's describing the spiritual condition of every single person who is unsaved. Every person who doesn't have a relationship with Christ. What he's describing is what we were before we came to Christ. What he's describing is his audience before they came to Christ. Ephesians 2, he says that they were dead. They were dead in their sins in which they once walked. When they followed the world and they followed the devil and they followed their sinful flesh. So he's saying don't live like an unbeliever but rather live like a believer. Now church it should not surprise us when we see an unbeliever living like an unbeliever. That shouldn't be shocking. Right? When you, when you watch your TV or you go on the internet or you're looking at social media. We should not be shocked to discover that unsaved people live like unsaved people. That should not be shocking to us at all. What should be concerning to us is when we see saved people living like unsaved people. When we see people who profess belief in Christ, and yet they live like those who don't believe in Christ, that should be concerning to us. And so he's saying to his audience, don't live like the world. Don't live like an unbeliever. Live like a follower of Christ. Notice the contrast. Verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. When we were presented with the message of the gospel. When we were told about the death 
and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we were called to repent, repentance is to turn away from our rebellion. Repentance is to stop doing what we've been doing, to stop heading in the wrong direction, to stop defying God, to stop rebelling against God. Repentance is to turn away from that rebellion, and faith is to put our faith in a crucified and risen Savior. And in contrast to the walking that used to characterize our lives, in contrast to following the ways of the world and following the influences of the devil and following the influences and the desires of our sinful flesh, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the contrast of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 with Ephesians 2, verse 10. We're no longer to walk the way we once walked. We're to walk in the good works that God's prepared for us to walk in. So we live like followers of Christ. And notice what this consists of, verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you're no longer your old self, so don't act like your own self, your old self. You are new in Christ, act like it. Put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your minds, put on the new self. So practically, what does this look like? What does it look like practically for us to take off or put off the old self? Think of a garment. Like think, think of clothing. What, what does it look like for you to take off or to put off the old garment of sin and, and rebellion? And what does it look like to put on the, the, the clothing of the new self of obedience and faithfulness? What does that look like? Well, this is what Paul talks about. He's very practical here. The, the first thing he says is that we are to speak the truth. We are to speak the truth. Notice in verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So within the church, we as God's people, we should be truthful. We should be truthful in all of our communication outside of the church, inside of the gathering of the church, with unbelievers, with believers. We as God's people ought to be truthful in our speech. Now, that's not just the spoken word. That's also the written word. Any kind of communication, we should be truthful. Now, parents, let me ask you this question. How important is it for your child to tell you the truth? All right, I got three boys, 14, 13, 11. It is very important to my wife and I that our children are honest Right? We, we want to model honesty for our children, and we also expect honesty from our children, right? Now, there are consequences to honesty, and there are consequences to dishonesty. And the consequences to honesty are good consequences, because if you discover that over time your child is honest, then the consequence of honesty is you can trust your child. But if you discover that you catch your child in a lie, then it makes you wonder, well, are they telling me the truth this next time? 
And if you discover that there's a pattern of dishonesty, a pattern of lying, well, the consequence of that is, I don't trust you. Have you ever caught your spouse lying to you? Does that help your marriage or hurt your marriage? Does that, like, make you feel good about your spouse, or does that make you have some not very good thoughts about your spouse? Honesty and truth-telling is important in parenting. It's important in marriage, and it's important in all of our relationships and Specifically, in what Paul is talking about here, it's important in the life of the church that we be honest in all of our communication. Notice how he says this. He says, having put away falsehood. Falsehood was a part of the old self. He says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So specifically, what he's talking about is speaking the truth to those within our spiritual family, within the church. Specifically, he's talking about that because he says we're members one of another. We are one body in Christ. Remember that? That's the metaphor that Paul uses. He says we are one body in Christ, and individually... We are members of that body. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at Romans chapter 12. We are one body in Christ. Individually, we're members of the body of Christ. We are members one of another. We should be honest with each other. We should tell the truth to each other. We should never have to wonder. I wonder if my spiritual brother or my spiritual sister, I wonder if my fellow believer is being honest with me. Truthful. The second thing he talks about is this. Be careful with anger and deal with it quickly. Notice verse 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So when he says be angry and do not sin, I think Paul is clear that not all anger is bad anger. There are some things that we, we should be angry about. Right? We should be angry about gross injustices. We should be angry about evil. Right? We shouldn't just sit back and be indifferent to it and say, oh, well, no big deal. I mean, there's certain things that should cause us to have some righteous anger. But the truth is, the things that often make us angry, the things that often bring up angry thoughts and angry feelings within us are not injustices in the world or evil. It's because somebody has, in some way, done something we didn't like, right? Maybe they said something we didn't like, or maybe they did something we didn't like. You know, we were just going down the road, and we were just minding our own business, and we were driving all safe, and somebody cut us off. We got mad, and our hands started going crazy, and some bad words shot out of our mouth. You know, or maybe we were just calmly waiting in line and somebody decided, hey, I'm just going to cut right in here. Or something else. You know, we just perceive that something's just not fair. You know, something's not right. This person shouldn't have spoken in that way or this person shouldn't have done what they did or, or whatever. And, and we get upset and we get angry and we get mad. Does that ever happen? Be angry and do not sin. So we got to be careful about our anger. 
right? We've we got to make sure that we're, we're, we're appropriately angry if we're going to be angry about something, but, but there's plenty of things that we're inappropriately angry about. Oftentimes, our anger would fall under the classification of sin. So he says, be angry and do not sin. But he also says this, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So in other words, deal with it quickly. Don't hold on to it. Right? Somebody at work said something that upset you. Right? Somebody, let's, let's bring it into the church. Somebody in your small group said something that upset you. Right? You're angry about it. You're not happy. So you go to bed tonight and you go to bed angry. And you wake up tomorrow and you're still thinking about it. And you're still seething about it. And you're just, it's just festering in your soul. And you just hang on to it. And you hang on it for day after day and day. And you hang on to it for weeks. And you hang on to it for months. No. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. you got to deal with it quickly. And then he says this. Do not or give no opportunity to the devil. When we hold on to anger and we allow anger to fester in our soul and we do not deal with anger appropriately, it gives the devil opportunity to influence us. It gives the evil one an open door into our lives because unresolved anger is sin. Holding on to anger and letting it fester in your soul gives the devil an opportunity. And anger is addressed elsewhere in the scripture. In fact, Galatians 5, Paul talks about the works of the flesh, and he gives this list of of the works of the flesh, and one of these works of the flesh that he mentions are fits of anger. In Colossians 3, which we looked at a few moments ago, in Colossians 3, he talks about what we need to put away, and one of the things that he lists that we need to put away, anger. James chapter 1 says that everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And he says the reason for this is that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So be careful with your anger, deal with it quickly. Third thing, work hard and share. Notice verse 28. Now some of you may say, well, I don't have any problems with this one. Verse 28, it says, let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So here he's addressing thieves and he's saying, look, don't steal anymore. Instead of stealing, instead of taking what doesn't belong to you, work hard with your own hands, do honest work so that not only you can meet your needs. I mean, obviously working hard is how we meet our needs. You meet your own needs, but also you'll have something that you can share with others who have needs. Right? So don't steal. Don't take, work hard, be honest, labor, so that not only your needs are met, but also you have something you can share with others who have a need. The the fourth thing he mentions is, is to be edifying in our speech. Look at verse 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So here he's saying, look, don't let any corrupting things come out of your mouth, but rather that which is building up, that which encourages, that which edifies. And I really think we need to consider not just the words we speak, but the words we write. 
You know that, that email that you composed when you were angry? You ever written an email when you were angry? And you fired that thing off and you can't get it back. A 24-hour rule is a good thing to have, right? 24-hour rule. Because I'm pretty sure, and I know, I know I speak from personal experience, what is so frustrating to you in that moment, if you give it 24 hours, it's just, it's not going to look the same. It's not going to be the same. Right? So, so think about those emails. Think, think about those text messages. It's so simple, man. You just grab that device and you can fire off a message in a matter of seconds. Or that tweet. Or that social post. Right? So it's not just... Or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's not even something you wrote. Maybe it's something you just shared. Right? It's an image. It's a meme. It's, it's something somebody else said that's corrupting, that's not appropriate, that doesn't build up. And you just, all you did was share it. But your name's attached to it. You put it out there. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Our speech has, our speech is powerful. Did you know that? I mean, one of the things we Americans prize is, is our freedom of speech. Right? We have freedom of speech. But church, let me, yes, we may have freedom of speech as, as Americans, but our Free speech should be governed by what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I don't care what protections our United States Constitution provides us, we're going to stand before God one day. And we're going to give an account for every careless word we've spoken. And so when we think about this and we ask ourselves, well, are my words helpful? Are my words hurtful? You've heard the childhood taunt, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's false. It's a lie. You may not be able to literally break someone's bones with your words, but I'm telling you, words are damaging. They are destructive. They are poisonous. They have the capacity to be poisonous. Or they have the capacity to be a great blessing. In fact, here's what James says. James chapter 3. He says, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. We sing our songs. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so destructive speech would be for me to slander or for me to gossip or me to spread destructive speech about someone. Are we building up our church family with our speech? Are we encouraging with our speech? Are we giving grace to others through our speech? I mean, think about that. He says this. He says, so that, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Is your speech giving grace to those who hear it? Are they being benefited through your speech? Or are they being harmed? The fifth thing is this, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, notice he says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now in chapter 1, he talked about the fact that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit marks us out as belonging to God. The Holy Spirit is the the guarantee 
in our lives that as we've enjoyed the spiritual blessing of salvation, there's more blessing to come, right? God who began a good work in us is going to take it to completion or is going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So God who began a good work in us is going to finish that good work in us. The Holy Spirit is a deposit or a guarantee of that reality. The Holy Spirit marks us out as being God's own children. And he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we use destructive speech, we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. When we are sinfully angry and we allow that sinful anger to fester in our soul and to rot our soul, we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. When we put on the old self and we take back those vices of the old manner of life and we put them back on and we begin to walk in the old self, we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. The sixth thing I want to mention here, verse 31, he talks about putting away vices. Look, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. These are bad things. These are, these are vices. These are things we should not be putting on. In fact, we're to be putting them away. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Put them far, far away. Instead, verse 32, we're to be kind to one another. You might say this is number seven. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. When you think about all those vices that you're supposed to put away, all those bad things that you're not supposed to be involved with, and then you think about what he's positively saying here. He says, be kind to one another. Church, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How much has God forgiven us? Just think about that. I mean, just think about the last couple of days. Think about the ways in which you and I have sinned. I I don't know how you've sinned. You may not know how I've sinned, but I know I've sinned. I know I've sinned. I've done things I shouldn't have done. And I've spoken words that I shouldn't have spoken. Right? I've acted in ways I shouldn't have acted. I've I've said things that I shouldn't have said. I've even thought things I shouldn't have thought. And let's not forget our thoughts. Our thoughts can sometimes be sinful. And we may think, well, you know, I haven't really sinned a whole lot lately. I mean, if I think about my actions, I mean, I've been pretty good. I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl. But, 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 but go beyond just what you've done. Go beyond just what you've said. Think about what you have thought in your mind. I'll give you an example. Jesus is talking about adultery. And, and, in, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he, he, he has a series of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Well, he, he, he brings up the topic of adultery. He says, you've heard that it was said, and he talks about adultery. But then he says this, but I say to you, if anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, men, you and I might be able to say, oh, I've, I've, I haven't 
been sexually involved with someone else's spouse. But by the standard Jesus is applying, are you innocent? I mean, come on. How many of us in our minds have gone places we should have never gone? You see, the example that Jesus gives is the example that says what happens in your mind matters because think about it, those actions start somewhere, right? Where does the sin begin? It begins in your heart. It begins in your, in your interior. It begins in your inner being. And so it's not just the actions that we take. It's not just the, it's not just the, the, the words that we speak. It's also the thoughts that we think. I mean, we may be thinking all kinds of vile thoughts, We may be thinking all kinds of angry thoughts. We may have rage in our minds. So let me ask you again. How much has God forgiven you? How much sin has God forgiven in your life? I can't even begin to number the amount of sin that God has forgiven in my life. I can't even begin to put a number on how many inappropriate thoughts, inappropriate words, inappropriate actions that God has forgiven me. I can't even begin to number it. How much sin has God forgiven? And you know our sin has consequences. I mean, it starts all the way back in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve. It's perfect. Either in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine how incredible that place must have been? They're in the Garden of Eden. I mean, this is an unfallen world. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's pristine. It's perfect. God says, I don't want you to eat from that tree. The garden's yours. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, their eyes were opened. They saw that they were naked. When God came looking for them, they hid. When God confronted them about their sin, they were cast out of that garden. And the world was now fallen. And if you follow the biblical narrative, if you follow the story of the Bible, you see the devastating consequences of sin. You see the devastating result of sin, and our sin has a devastating result. Our sin has deadly consequences. Our sin deserves punishment. That's why Jesus died on a cross. Jesus took the punishment that I deserved. He took the punishment that you deserved. He took the wrath of God upon himself against our sin. Jesus died for our sins. He was our substitute. He was a sacrifice, and he died the death we should have died. How much has God forgiven you? How much has God shown his love to you? So let me read this, or let me quote this to you again. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What's the standard? God in Christ who forgave you. There is no place for harboring unforgiveness among the people of God. You can't hold on to to unforgiveness. You can't be an unforgiving person. You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ and say, you know what, I will freely accept the forgiveness that God gives to me through His Son Jesus, but I will not extend it to others. 
doesn't work like that. His disciples, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And you know how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? It's what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. That as they pray to their heavenly Father, our Father who art in heaven, as they say to their Father in heaven, forgive us our sins. It's not just forgive us our sins, it's forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Church, there's no place for unforgiveness in the family of God. And somebody might have, might have said some hurtful things to us. Somebody might have done some hurtful things toward us. Somebody might have gossiped about us. Somebody might have said nasty things about us. Somebody might have slandered us. Somebody might have mistreated us. Somebody might have looked at us in a way that we didn't want them to look at us. But we don't sit back and say, I'm not going to forgive. Somebody may have harmed us in a truly significant way. But when we consider how much God has forgiven us in Christ, there's no way, there's no way we can say that we won't forgive. To put on the new self is to extend forgiveness. We got to move here. The ninth thing, or the eighth thing, I, I don't know, I'm off count. Imitate God. Notice chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitators of God, we are to reflect the character of God. You know, I've told my children, as I've tried to parent them, as I've tried to shepherd them in, in the right way, that when they act badly, they are reflecting on their parents. But even more so, they're reflecting on their heavenly father. Right? My wife and I want our children to act with respect, and we want them to act properly. We know they're not perfect. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But, but we want them to act in the right way because they're not only reflecting on us but they're ultimately reflecting on our father in heaven we are god's children and as god's children we should reflect the character of our heavenly father our heavenly father is merciful we too are to be merciful our father in heaven is holy we are to live lives of holiness our father in heaven is loving we are to be loving be imitators of God as beloved children. We should imitate the character of God. We should reflect His character in our actions, in our attitude, in our everything. And then finally he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So rather than walking in the way of the unbeliever, in the way of the Gentile, we are to walk in love. We're to walk in love. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And then he said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. Pretty simple. Simple to say, maybe not so simple to do. Love God, love people. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, that gets harder, doesn't it? Love God, love people, love people isn't some people, love people is all people, and loving people includes your enemies. But then Jesus also says in John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another 
As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He's talking to his disciples. He's telling his disciples to love one another. We love people. We love our enemies. We love disciples. We love followers of Jesus. Church family, we love each other. Love is action. Love is a verb. We do it. We go after it. We live it. We practice it. The faith is to be practiced, right? The the doctrines of election and predestination, the doctrine of adoption, the the, the doctrine of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and all the glorious doctrines that we discover in the Scripture. This isn't just theoretical stuff here. It has everything to do with how we live our lives. We're to be truth tellers. We're to be people who control our anger and deal with it rightly. We're to be people who love and show compassion and are kind and are tender-hearted. We're to be people who work hard and share. You see, he's talking about practical day-in, day-out stuff of life. We've got to take off the old self, put off the old self, and put on the new self. And, and church family, in the same way that you and I have to get dressed every day, you and I make a decision every, kind of, every day how we're going to get dressed. Are we going to dress with these vices or are we going to dress with the virtues? Are we going to put on the old self today? Or are we going to put on the new self today? Now, I can't do this and you can't do this without God's help. We need God to help us. And we need to cry out to God and say, God, help me to be the new person you've made me to be. Help me to, to live like who I am in Christ. And so church, let's put on. Let's put on the new self. Not just today, but every day.